You're listening to the Trust Issues Podcast. I'm David Puner, a Senior Editorial Manager at CyberArk, the global leader in identity security. There's an old Mike Tyson quote you may have heard. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. In the context of cybersecurity, the message is, when things get real, what will you do? How will you react? You can attempt to prepare for seemingly every scenario under the sun, but you never know when or how or where you'll actually get punched. And you can't know what the sun might illuminate next that's never yet seen the light of day. And in cyber, when you've been punched, you may not even know it's happened. In cyber, adversaries don't play by rules. They can punch below the waist when your eyes are closed and in the kidneys when your back is turned. It's a battle. Things can get messy. So how do you prepare for the unknown? For that Iron Mike punch to the face? And what do you do if it happens? That's what today's guest and I try to tackle in the following conversation. Today, I talk with Shai Nahari, who's the VP of Red Team Services here at CyberArk. And he's a super interesting guy, and I'm not just saying that. And we're going to talk all about the Red Team and what Shai's up to here. But before we get into that, we started talking about some of his favorite places around the world. I hope you enjoy the conversation. One of the things I wanted to ask you from the top before we really get into the the nuts and bolts of this is you had mentioned in our company Lunch and Learn last week that, that you lived in New Zealand for a year. What, what were you up to in New Zealand? <laughs> um, so I kind of followed the, uh, the same path most uh, Israeli after the army do. So I went and backpacked in Australia and New Zealand. So I spent overall, I think a little bit more than a year in both Um in New Zealand, it was mainly just, you know, tracking, backtracking, and just, you know, enjoying the scenery amazing, of that amazing country. Um, I did the same in Australia, but I also kind of uh, stayed for a while in Australia, lived there for a few months, kind of soaked in the life there. The short answer to that question is travel, but the longer answer is just, you know, enjoy the, being 23. If there's one place that you could, that you could live in and, and, you know, stay in permanently, would it, would it be one of those places? It's a good question. I've lived, you know, in three or four continents, depending on how you, you know, uh, classify some countries. And I think uh, Australia would be my number one priority. I think Australia is an amazing country. Kind of have a mixture of both uh, ability to travel, but also, you know, easy, comfortable life. So, yeah, I think the answer would be Australia for me. Sounds good. I've never been there. Want to go. Been to New Zealand, though, and, uh, and it's fantastic. Red Team Services or Red Team, what is that for, for the folks out there who might not know? I run a, a group of adversary simulation. It's called the, the group called Adversary Simulation um, or Red Teaming. The group really has three different goals. The first one is to provide adversary simulation to um, our customers and prospects, kind of allow them to face um, against someone acting as a real adversary and show them how well they would be doing in a, a real incident, right? So testing their entire security posture from the technical controls to the human controls. The second goal is to do the same thing for CyberArk itself, kind of eat our own dog food, if you will, um, 
and simulate an adversary going after CyberArk you know, with specific you know, threat actors in mind. And the third thing we do is, and something that came organically throughout the years, is we provide uh, incident response or provide uh, help to our incident response team and provide a think-like-an-attacker mindset uh, in scenarios of a breached organization when they reach out to CyberArk and trying to um, provide what an attacker would do during those um, incidents. How does somebody get into uh, Red Team Services and how, how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, so obviously different path. Different people take different paths to it. Um, today, you can actually take classes, university classes in offensive security. You know, started as pen testing, testing application, testing, you know, networks. When I started this, this wasn't something you can just pick up at university. So I, you know, initially started in the... Uh, Israeli Defense Force, as you can hear by my, this is not a Boston native accent, right? It isn't? I thought it was. <laughs> close, close. Yeah. So I started my, uh, you know, my introduction to this in the Israeli Defense Force. But even before that, you know, when I was a child, you know, getting access to computers, I was more interested in kind of trying to understand how to hack, you know, computer games than to play them. Um, so I spent most of my time kind of learning this. And that led me into an interest in kind of breaking things. Obviously, you know, wanted to to do good there. And the Israeli Defense Force obviously kind of exposed me to things that I, I wasn't aware of. And then later on in my career, I kind of picked it up on my own, continued that research. And yeah, and at some point in time, I moved to the States about 15 years ago. At the time, I worked for a telecommunication company. And then after that, I started my own company doing exactly that, adversary simulation and red teaming, um, offering our services to different organizations. At that time, CyberArk was actually one of my customers. So I spent a few years doing some, some work for CyberArk. And at a certain point in time, I was offered to join CyberArk and kind of build the adversary simulation team within CyberArk. So tell us a little bit about the team itself. You mentioned a little bit about adversary simulation, but how does that actually take place? When do you get involved? We really offer full, full-blown adversary simulation. So you know, imagine a bank um, coming to you and say, we want to test ourselves against an adversary trying to get access to our ATM network, right? So think of everything that lies in, in between, right? From the technical controls of getting access to the human element of social engineering to the internal security controls of detection and prevention of cyber attack to moving to sensitive networks. And all the way even to procedures, right? So what happened when there is a detection of an incident? Um, who do you notify? How do you notify? How do you, how do you react? And as the you know, famous words of the great philosopher Mike Tyson, um, everyone have a, have a plan until they get punched in the face, right? So this is an opportunity to actually test yourself you know, under real battle conditions. That's great. I like that you're taking some inspiration from, from Mike Tyson. So when it comes to banks and, and the security, I assume this is going a little deeper than, than PIN numbers. Correct. So every organization obviously have different crown jewels that they want to protect. So it really depends on what the organization does and what you want to test against. You know, banks, obviously, it could be ATM. It doesn't have to be ATM. Uh, it could be Swift system. It could be uh, mainframes. It could be, you know, PAI. Critical infrastructure obviously have, you know, SCADA, SCADA networks, you know, infrastructure network that they want to protect, manufacturing sites. So every organization is different and every organization have a different uh, secret sauce that they're trying to protect. 
we try to look at it holistically, which means we try to look at the organization as a whole, kind of ask the organization, what is it you're trying to protect, learn about the business, and then ask them to define the KPIs, the targets, as the actual business targets, right? So we don't want to come back and, and kind of do, okay, we got certain privileges and that's the end game, right? Because in reality, no attacker would say, oh, I got, you know, certain privileges, domain admin, and then, you know, this is it. So you want to measure yourself against what adversary would actually do. Um, so we ask, you know, what are, the, what are the targets? Tell us a little bit of the targets. Obviously, there are legal framework around that to make sure there's, you know, everyone are protected. Um, but outside of that, almost everything else is a fair game. Um, if it would be something that a real attacker may try. Are customers and prospects sometimes hesitant to to tap into your services for fear of what they might find? So this is interesting. When I started this business, uh, the, the, my original company, that would have been the case, right? We've, a lot of the time in the past, we used to get pushback from, you know, senior management. Because if you can, if you think about it, the one who are authorized to approve this needs to be, you know, senior, you know, usually, you know, VP, C-level, board members, and so on. So there used to be, you know, some pushback there. Today, we get called by board member uh, directly kind of going above the C-level and saying, we want to understand this, you know, security risk for our business. So I, I'm, I'm happy to say that today this is a, different, a little bit different view than it used to be. Um, organizations are not concerned anymore. You know, they, you know most organizations out there uh, above certain size already went through some sort of, you know, security testing in the past, whether it's vulnerability assessment, penetration testing, um, they have internal teams. So the discussion is not about, you know, we don't want you to do it, but mostly how and when. So it's a very different world that we live in. As far as staying uh, atop whatever the latest, greatest attack techniques may be and or coming up with them your, yourselves, how do you do that? I think what's unique to us is that we do spend a lot of time doing exactly what you just described, research and development. So we develop our own set of TTPs, um, our own set of tools and techniques, and try to emulate what you know other actors are doing. Obviously, you don't always have insight to the nature of other attack groups, especially when you talk about nature, uh, nation states. You may know what they're going after. You may have some insight into their techniques based on public information, but a lot of the internal stuff that is not detected yet, you don't know. So we try to emulate and do internal research and develop our own uh, equivalent tools to allow our customers to test against. So the idea for them is to face an adversary with unknown set of capabilities. As we go through this engagement with the customer, we would oftentimes switch to a more uh, commoditized tools to kind of allow them also to test themselves against what's already public knowledge. So it gives them a good idea of how would we face against unknown adversary with unknown capabilities, as well as how well are we facing public commoditized TTPs and techniques that are currently out there? So give them a good range of testing against known and unknown at the same time. How much more complicated has the landscape gotten in the last two years? So this is interesting. So we, when you know, when the old, you know, when all COVID started and you know companies moved to to work from home, there was a rush. We saw a rush you know, going into building infrastructure that wasn't there, you know, almost overnight. You know, we've seen, you know, even organizations that traditionally did not allow work from home. We've seen certain banks that had some compliance 
reason to not allow that, kind of basically got, got an approval to do that and kind of build the entire infrastructure overnight. The, the second phase was as a reaction of that, obviously, you know, a lot of holes, a lot of security holes happened, right? I think today we're basically left with the infrastructure that was built there is still there, uh, whether the organization is using it or not. And it became part of their, you know, attack surface, right? If you build, you know, an infrastructure to allow an external contractor to access your organization, that infrastructure is not going anywhere, right? Whether you use it or not. We've also seen a big shift, obviously, in ransomware. So if we look at 2018, 2019, there was also a moment there when we saw CryptoMiner uh, running the same in the ransomware. Nowadays, you, you know, mainly see ransomware groups. And we, you know, there's almost not a day that you don't hear about an attack. We did see a shift there as well. Today, we see more shift towards operator-driven attacks. So a human being actually drives the attack. It's no longer just go drop a ransomware and run it. It's an operator that knows what he's doing. It's going after privileges, escalating privileges, and kind of as a final step, <clears throat> drop the, the ransomware, which is much harder for organization to prepare because at that point in time, the attacker is already in the network. We've also seen a shift, and that's from recent month, where we've seen <clears throat> ransomware operators skipping the encryption part. So they almost, they don't even encrypt the data, they just steal the data and you know, get the same ransom just from not sharing the data. We've seen it with Lepsis a lot. But they stole data and just, you know, ask for ransomware to not release it. So, and that's obviously most healthy for them, right? Because if you don't need to encrypt, it's one less set of IOCs that you need to, uh, that you give you less chance to get detected there. How does your team get involved when there's an actual crisis? Yeah. So <clears throat> this is something that kind of came organically to the team. So this wasn't part of our, you know, when we built a team, this wasn't something we, you know, immediately thought about. But <clears throat> over time, We've noticed there's, you know, organizations out there when they get breached, the phone number zero always goes to attorney, right? You find out there's someone in your network. The first thing you do is you call your attorney, you know, no question asked. Uh, the actual first call you make is to the incident response company, right? Company that will help you investigate what's going on in the actual breach. And oftentimes, <clears throat> either at the same time or as the result of the finding of that incident response, they may call, you know, a company like CyberArk to help remediate and kind of maybe block the, the attacker, rotate all the credentials in the organization, help build a secondary infrastructure. So they, we, we get oftentimes called to scenarios where organizations are you know, having an active breach on their hands. And when that happened, this is, this is led by our consulting group, right? Not the red team group. But oftentimes, because there is an adversary and there's an active adversary in the network, oftentimes they will call us to kind of help come in and gives the attacker perspective on this, right? To, okay, so the attacker is here, he's going after that system. You know, how would he do that? Why do you think he's doing it right now? Um, how do you think he got to that point in time? So we, we sit, you know, together with the incident response team and, you know, maybe law enforcement, whoever is, you know, that, that you know, part of the game, uh, if you will, and kind of help bring our own perspective of, how, you know, if we were the attacker, what we have would have done in that you know specific scenario. How do you account for working with law enforcement in potentially any country in the world? There's always legal already in place. Usually there is an active responder, like an incident response company that is leading that uh, that incident or they're handling the investigation. And they would the one oftentimes telling the organization, hey, we need a company like CyberArk to come in and we need their advice on, you know, how did the attacker move here or how did he use the identity? 
So at that point in time, to, to ask and to answer your question, oftentimes we there's no there's no law enforcement at that point in the game, right? If there is, then there is you know certain framework that is already set by the legal teams to kind of handle that communication. And obviously, you know, our legal team is involved in, in you know every step of the way. So what's it take to get a job on your team? I'm glad you asked. We do actively, you know, hire. Uh, we always actively hire uh, red teamers. Uh, so for for my specific team, like I said, because we're maybe a little bit different than than other organizations that do that, we we do spend a lot of time on research and development, and kind of coming up with our own techniques and tools. So probably looking for someone who has some offensive security development experience, someone who actually wrote offensive security tools, uh, maybe did a research, uh, exploitation research, or just weaponized existing vulnerabilities. But definitely, you know, we're always looking for someone who can actually come up, develop tools, develop new techniques, rather than, you know, traditional operator, people who just, you know, do the operation. We, we tend to prefer people who have that, you know, more uh, offensive security development experience that can also do operation rather than the operation who can also do some development. So I'm taking it that you probably don't get too many people transfer from the content team over to your team. <laughs> um, I wish we, we do, you know, we do have, uh, all, you know, as, as most organization in, in our field, we do have challenges in, you know, attracting, you know, finding the right talent for us. So is the shortage of talent in the industry because of the lack of experience at this point, or is it because it, it's, there's just not enough talent out there? Yeah, I, I think, the, you know, the cybersecurity field overall, you know, it's, it's a big word, cybersecurity, right? But I think because of the huge expansion the last couple of years, there's just not enough talent overall. Does the industry invest in the training or is it relying on on possible candidates to get this training elsewhere and then bring it to the industry? This is a really, really good question. I will obviously can only comment on my own opinion. I feel that in some cases, there you, you're right, right? You know, I think that some organization, because of that expansion, you know, that cybersecurity had, don't invest enough in talent, or at least not enough in junior level to kind of bring it up to, to senior level. Uh, but it's also a matter of, you know, of time. If the organization is expanding and they need you know, to fill you know, 200 positions right now, then you might not have enough time or capacity to kind of invest in talent. Um, so I think, and then again, this is my own personal opinion, I do feel that we as an industry kind of relying today on universities, government, to, you know, the, the uh, sector to kind of provide us with talent, which again, is not working well for us, right? From from sheer capacity. We need to do things differently. Yeah, because when I think about what you do, it seems to me, and probably to other people who don't know all that much about much, um, that what you do is very similar to the kind of stuff that we see in TV and the movies and, and stuff like that all the time. Like, you know, I might probably dating myself here, but a Jack Bauer type of character. Maybe that's a little bit extreme, but there's a crisis, and you know, you call in the you call in the pit boss or the viper or whoever whomever it may be, and and you know, off you go, and and things are solved relatively quickly. Is that how this goes in real life? Is it any? Are there any movies or TV shows that this is actually similar to, and and, and get it right? Are there any shows out there that? kind of show a real representation of this. I would personally think the, the one that I, I thought was the most you know, accurate representation was Mr. Robot, at least the first season that I watched. 
I think everything there, and they've definitely got, you know, a very good, you know, uh, consulting, someone consulting them and, and kind of making sure it's, you know, it, it's close to real life. Everything there would be something that is, you know, feasible and they use the real tool, the real techniques, even the real hardware. The only thing that was would have been different in that show, I would say, is the time, right? You would see operation that would take months to actually execute, you know, done, you know, in five minutes, you know. But outside of that, and that's TV, right? You have to make it interesting. Right. But uh, outside of that, I would say that's a good representation of, you know, hacking or, you know, penetration testing um, or the best one I have seen uh, to date. So, so in real life, everything is much slower than, than the way that we might be accustomed to seeing it on TV or in the movies. I would say there's much more failure in real life. Like you would try mm. a million things before one successful thing happened. It's it's rarely that you go just go, you know, the first thing you try succeed. It's it's really think about it as someone who's trying to, you know, poke, you know, holes in, you know, in a door, in a wall, right? It's you need to spend time and try to understand what what's working, what's not working in order to succeed. I'm glad you mentioned success because I wanted to ask you what success looks like for your team. I think if we actually look at what we're giving to our customers, success should always be measured against what value did you bring the organization, right? And it's not always, yes, I succeeded, you know, I got to, you know, your mainframe, you know, look how cool I am. It's really about, okay, we've tried different techniques. We want to give you a perspective of different level of attackers and we want to make you better. So if the customer has an understanding they did not have when we started the engagement, and he has an actionable and you know keys actionable plan to improve his security posture then i would call that a success right and it's not about solving all the problem you found it's about making steady progress because again in real life you don't just you know finish an engagement and oh we're now secure it's just about making steady progress in security over time as a result of an insight you gain from that engagement, from that adversary simulation engagement. What's the biggest misconception or gap you see when it comes to enterprise or organizational understanding of cybersecurity? By far, you know, from my experience, I would say focusing on the perimeter, right? Focusing on um, getting in. And, you know, a lot of organizations spend a lot of time on trying to make sure attackers are not in or not able to gain that initial foothold. Which is, again, if you think of organizations out there today, especially when you look at, you know, Fortune 200 companies, they have hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of employees, you know, tens of thousands of assets exposed to the internet. The assumption that nothing in your network is never compromised is just, it's, I think it's always always going to be false. Um, so I think a lot of the time we would recommend organizations to kind of assume that somebody's already in their network um, or someone already gained access to, you know, a cloud asset, and, and try to take that assumption, start from there. When you're planning and building your security posture and your security controls, make the assumption that something is already compromised, right? Don't, you know, obviously spend, spend the effort and time to try to protect the perimeter. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but, you know, like I said, hope for the best, prepare for the worst. Assume that something is already compromised and see, you know, make all the security control with that assumption in mind. So trust but verify Always think, what if attacker already has access to, you know, an employee's laptop or has access to that, you know, cloud asset? Is that a game over for me? Does that mean he took over my entire infrastructure? And if the answer is yes, you need to go back to your drawing, you know, drawing table and redesign the entire security posture for that asset. 
So assume breach. Assume breach. What's the most challenging crisis you've ever been involved in, and what did you learn from it? So I have an interesting story. I, you know, I'm I'm going to try to stay vague, you know, to make sure that you know I don't give too much. But we've um, we've had an engagement with an organization, and we've had a repeated one. So we've we've done an, a red team engagement with them for two years straight, and for the third year when they hired us. Um, they've prepared for a full year for us, meaning they've, you know, had different security controls in place and had, you know, entire teams getting preparing the organization for our arrival. So we start, you know, we start the engagement. We do the initial call, you know, talking about what the crown jewels for the target. You know, we're given the green light to start and we start the engagement. So we go getting, we move to from one target to another. And then two days in, we get an email from the organization saying, we caught you. And we say, really? Wow, that's impressive. You know, we, we, didn't, we didn't think you will. Can you send us the uh, evidence for that? And they're sending us the evidence of what they found. And we look at that and we say, that's not us. And they say, what do you mean that's not you? I said, that's not us. So we go back and forth and they keep sending us. We say, we found this and we found this. And they keep sending us those list of IOCs. And we looked at them and we say, none of this is us. So obviously, this is a very tense moment. At that point in time, they involve, as I mentioned, they involve an incident response company. And, you know, sure enough, they found out there is a different, it's a different nation state actor that's in their network. Um, funny enough, for two years. Wow. Uh, yes. Uh, so obviously, you know, we helped in the investigation. You know, we've given, you know, we looked at the data that was found. I won't share more detail, obviously. Um, but this was a very interesting scenario to say the least you can tell me the rest later <laughs> I, I don't think i can do that even offline but yeah well when i join your team you can tell me yes i can tell all you right again. i recently heard you referred to as the most interesting man at CyberArk. is that something that um you would agree with and if so why and if not why Oh wow, that's a bold statement. I, I <laughs> would, <laughs> I, I don't even know what to to say to that. And no, absolutely not. I can think of uh, a lot of a lot of people. Some of them are in my team that have you know interesting stories. But again, if you if you meet me in person, buy me a beer, and I'll tell you more. Sounds good. We'll do when tonight. Sounds like a plan. Thank you for having me, David. I, I had a blast. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Trust Issues. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a question, comment, constructive comment, preferably, but, you know, it's up to you. Or an episode suggestion, please drop us an email at trustissues at cyberarc.com. And make sure you're following us wherever you listen to podcasts.